Well, the school was right above Hunter's house. Right? It was up on a, on a bench above Hunter Thompson's house. And Hunter shot a light out of a lantern that we had in one of our tents, right? From, from his house, which was really dangerous and not such a good idea. Hi. Hello. 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 Hello, and welcome to Architecting. Hey, Adam. How's it going? Hey. Good. <laughs> Less than convincing, but um, who's on the podcast Good. today? It's going really well because I have an exciting podcast today. I have somebody that I wanted to talk to for a long time. We have Harry Teague. So Harry Teague, uh, he's he's just like one of those giants in Colorado architecture, especially in Aspen, I think. Um, he's a guy who grew up around the design field, uh, grew up, his father and his grandfather were both very prominent, uh, industrial designers and kind of bounced around. And then he, he landed at Yale for grad school, which you know, to me, that was interesting. Uh, you know, seeing somebody who went to the same school I did about like almost 50 years before me and at a really interesting time, right at like 1969, where we had, uh, Venturi and Scott Brown, you know, really sparking postmodernism, um, and Charles Moore, but then also the Bobby Seal um, trials at the same time, and and the riots they were happening there, and the school caught on fire, and blah blah blah. It's, it was like a, a crazy exciting time. Uh, looking back at Yale and thinking like, what was it like to be there? And then I got to ask him about it. And then sort of like, what do you, where do you take all that energy? And he took it to Aspen. And again, Aspen at a crazy time when you had the Eagles hanging out there and John Denver, and then he's becomes friends with Hunter S. Thompson, who was shooting the lights out of a school that he's designing. And I'll just stop here because I'm giving, yeah. I'm giving away the, Spoiler whole, alert. the whole interview, but that's how I felt like I'm just really excited uh, with these things that I've wanted to talk about. Yeah. Interesting guy. Uh, and we have a bonus at the end uh, after the credits where he, he talks about developing the first uh, taxi building with, with Will Bruder and David Baker and... Wow, fun. I can't wait to listen. <laughs> Do you have to listen now? Like, did I just give everything away? I know. Still listen. It's still good. Still good. Check it out. Hey, we're happy to be sponsored by Modern in Denver Magazine. For over a decade, they've been crafting fantastically curated content on Colorado designers and projects, spreading the gospel of good design within our region. And I love how the goal of Modern in Denver aligns with the goal of this podcast, to better build up and connect the community of Colorado designers. So go buy a copy of the magazine at your local bookstand, subscribe to their weekly email list, and follow them on Instagram. Check it out. Hey everyone, Adam just left the studio, so I'm commandeering the microphone. I need to tell you about an amazing opportunity. It's an AIA grassroots program called the Christopher Kelly Leadership Development Program. This is a nine-month competitive program for 16 emerging professionals. The class gathers once a month for a half-day session where you get to dive deep on topics like research and technology, 
community engagement, contracts and negotiation, and entrepreneurship, all through the lens of leadership. I've been a participant myself and on the executive committee for two years, and I can't speak highly enough about the benefits. If you get accepted into this program, you will leave with a strengthened network, targeted, helpful AEC industry knowledge, inspiration, and incredible friendships. You can find out more and start filling out the live application on the website, aiacolorado.org backslash Christopher Kelly Leadership Development Program. Applications are due by December 6th, and the class kicks off in late January. Check it out. Hey, hey, Harry, how's it going? Good. How are you? This thing's great. Good for you for doing this. Hey, thanks. Yeah, I think it's creating a long-needed sort of sense of architectural community that the AIA has dropped the ball on. Yeah. Well, thanks. You know, I think you were one of the sort of inspirations for it, really. I mean, uh, I remember seeing one of your lectures at CU and being like, man, I want a reason to talk to this guy a lot more. And uh, I need to set up something so I can I can uh, start interviewing people. But uh, now I finally get to do it. So thanks for joining. Yeah, that's great. Good for you. So where are you at right now? In your office? <laughs> Cheers. Yeah. I'm getting over like a little cold or something. So you'll have to do most of the talking. All right. That's very <laughs> difficult for me, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> Yeah, that's what I thought. That's good. Um, so, yeah, where are you at right now? You have an office in Aspen or? Uh, our office is in Basalt. It's in a Basalt. building I designed um, and developed sort of fortunately right before the 2008 crash, right? Mm. We managed to pre-sell mm. our units. Nice. Was, right before. Yeah. I like to take credit for figuring all that out and so on, but that's not exactly uh, how it worked. So we were just lucky. <laughs> nice. Yeah. What kind of space is it? How many people do you have working in there? Well, we're four now, but it's suitable for 12. Hmm. And um, we're in between work at this point. So our workflow is very uh, cyclical. So we're not hugely busy right now. We just got a couple of jobs in, which pick things back up. But that's how it works. With a very small office, you have these cycles, especially if you're aiming at larger projects. So it's the nature of the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Is it mostly projects around the Aspen area right now? Or are you all over the place? Or where are no, most of your projects? Uh, let's see. The work we're doing now is basically here. Uh, we have a little project in Vail, and we have a couple of projects up and down our valley is what mm. we're doing, not just Aspen. We're located in Basalt, which is like mid-valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, we moved down here 2008, and uh, everybody that worked in the office basically was here or down valley because nobody can afford to live in Aspen anymore. Our client base is primarily in Aspen, so... It's worked out okay. I think we did drop out of some of the sort of fracas and Aspen by being down here. Yeah. It's really interesting. You know, I talked with CCY about that same thing of, you know, moving to Basalt and being closer for employees, but kind of further from the client base. But Mm -hmm. just Basalt in general, it seems like it has such a dense concentration of architects 
per the population of basalt. Right. Does that make for an interesting community or you guys? Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, I had a, one of the guys that was working here, wonderful guy, Patrick Leeds, was looking for a house in basalt and he did a quick little study and colored in in Old Town basalt all of the uh, lots that were occupied by somebody in the construction trade, not contractors, but designers and uh, planners and so on. And it was about 50% of the wow. houses in, in Old Town. Had. So it's a pretty dense, which also makes it, you know, sort of competitive for local jobs. And we did just completed, well, not just, but uh, a project for the Roaring Fork Conservancy, which is a nonprofit. And that's in downtown Basalt. But otherwise, our other projects have been more or less pro bono projects, civic projects and so on. Uh, park designs, we designed a couple of bridges that are important in town. One of them was new, and that's the main entrance to town. And then the other one was a highway bridge that had been abandoned that I happened to commute across. And it just seemed like super prime real estate. So we turned it into a high line kind of a park. Hmm. Uh, planted, you know, made beautiful pavements and plants and boardwalks and so on. And now it's a really popular picnic spot, overlooks the Roaring Fork coming and going. So it's a great spot. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, uh, let's dive in here. I don't know if you like this question or not, but uh, who are you? How would you answer that? <laughs> I'm an architect. At, let's start there. It's like um, 12-step program here. <laughs> let's agree. <laughs> Hi, I'm Harry. I'm an architect. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm an architect. For better or for worse. It's been how me. many days? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I've, you know, been doing it for a long time now, 50 years. So I can say that, I think. And I've uh, been very fortunate to find this place to be an architect, I think, and that I have a really broad range of projects. It hasn't, I haven't been pigeonholed in any one thing. That's intentional, but it's also the good fortune of being here. I'm also the uh, third generation, with my children and the fourth, who are in the design fields. My grandfather and my father were industrial designers, hmm. very well known, and they did do buildings in addition to products and things like the inside of 7 Series Boeing airplanes and hmm. trains and all that kind of stuff. You know, a lot of interior work as well, but also some buildings too. Both of them did buildings when the World's Fairs were the show places for the future, et cetera, 39. And then also again in uh, 64, 66, 64, I think, when uh, both my grandfather and my father designed buildings for that fair. And stuff. Hmm. Where were they at? They were in the East Coast? Is that uh, where you grew up? No. Well, yeah. The two that I just mentioned were in Flushing Meadows. Yeah. Outside of New York, but they did do buildings in it. They did buildings in Brussels, and they did buildings in uh, other world's fairs. They were kind of fun. Yeah, 
especially those two in Flushing seemed pretty spectacular. I mean, there were, there were, and I, you know, I obviously didn't go to the 36 one. I wasn't born yet, but the 30, was it 36 or 39? I forget. Anyway, doesn't matter. But, um, yeah, to go into the one in 64 was really fun. I went quite a few times and was really interesting experience. So was your father and your grandfather with a uh, father-son team work together? And was there pressure on you to join? I got along with both of them. They didn't get along very well together, but they did work together. My my father had the misfortune of having exactly the same name as his father, right? So the credits got all balled up. Mm. And then my father resented that, Hmm. which is... One of his limitations, I think, you know, got to let go of things. But um, he did lots of great work. And, and I grew up, I think, importantly, maybe for this, is that I grew up in an ambience of where design matters. And, you know, we would drive around in a car. You know, I'd be in the back seat, And it was a constant design critique about everything. Buildings, cars, products. Uh, wherever we went, you know, traveling or whatever, you know, this was a stupid design or this was a terrific design or whatever it was. Like, you know. So yeah. for better or for worse, that's what I grew up in. And at least observing all of that, you know, whether at this point I would embrace all those criticisms, I don't know. But at the time, it was interesting. I'm not sure I understood why all these things were criticized so heavily but Hmm. um eventually i learned why they were you know Hmm. sort of underlying my grandfather was came in to the design field through illustration and he wound up doing advertisements for um large corporations and things arrow shirts he used to sketch these arrow shirts things and then he Hmm. put borders around advertisements that became known as teak borders and stuff Hmm. but Hmm. that gave him introduction to all sorts of people like uh george eastman of eastman kodak and henry ford and Hmm. of the eponymous ford motor company and uh, (laughs) and a few others that were good clients of his following and so on so Eventually, he switched over to being one of the founders of industrial design. He and Raymond Lowy and Henry Dreyfus were the first three American industrial designers. Uh, he was influenced by a trip to Europe in the 30s by the Bauhaus, obviously. Mm-hmm. And from then on, I think my grandfather is credited with coining the name industrial design. Hmm. Wow. And, uh, and uh, yeah, pretty deep roots, right? Yeah. And then my father had the same name, so, so he, he worked with my grandfather on a lot of projects at the office and then had his own office that did a lot of great work. Um, he didn't invent the reclining dental chair by any means, but his design for the dental chair became ubiquitous. It was for Ritter, hmm. a big company, and, yeah. and lots of other things that are interesting, daily products. For me, the downside of that was having to deal with the corporate sort of culture. uh, You were dealing with big corporations and the opportunity for more individual artistic expression was not there. So that's where I sort of drifted over into being an architect. 
Yeah. What was that decision like? I mean, you had this whole kind of legacy above you and then university time comes up and where did you go? And what was the sort of thought at that point of what you do? Well, as I said, I worked for my father for a couple of summers when I was in college, and I got a taste of that. And as I say, the corporate culture was not my cup of tea. I had yet to realize that you encounter other setbacks in architecture. (laughs) Yeah, can't escape. But, But it seemed like an opportunity to do something that had components of what I like to do. I mean, I had an artistic sort of been a majored in art history in college, Hmm. as well as having sort of my father's engineering background. And I would say that, you know, really important was that combination has steered my career. We had a shop in our garage that was very well equipped and very well maintained and so on, a really beautiful shop. Hmm. And um, we built boats together and uh, and we restored a 1927 Grand Prix Bugatti, mm. um, Type 37 Bugatti. Uh, so that sat wow. in the garage for years while we took it apart and put it back together and stuff. And so I think those hands-on experiences where you're connecting functional design, the functionality of a boat or a car with the design components and the boat we did, of course, had a design component, and the Bugatti was is something that still inspires me today. The combination, I mean, you look under the hood in the Bugatti and the engine is a work of art. It's unbelievable. You know, the colors of the metal, uh, the way they're finished, the way they're done, it's not pure function. The Bugattis in general were sort of like our family in that it was a legacy. Hmm. And I think the father was a furniture maker. Rather extraordinary furniture that's worth looking up. A lot of it was based on insects. It was Art Nouveau, so naturally inspired shapes. It's totally weird. I mean, (laughs) but it's really interesting and very valuable right now. (laughs) Of course, very unique stuff. Anyway, so then the children all did different things. One of them became a sculptor and the other became the Bugatti car designer, engineer, maker, builder of the period that established the brand of Bugattis. And the combination of engineering and function and art was sort of in that and seeing that in the way um, a car was put together in places you'd never see, the way the differential was attached to the rear axle with sewn together with hundreds of bolts was not the easiest way to do it, but just absolutely beautiful and the uh, the front axle famous front axle of Bugatti it was the first example of centrifugal casting hmm. these front axles were cast and they were hollow they had an elegant curve that incorporated the angle of the front wheels so the geometry of how the car handled was all tied into the front axle hmm. and the springs actually go through it I mean again in order to eliminate clumsy connections and all this other stuff, they did just amazing things. And just to do that technologically was extraordinary at the time. And uh, it was something that survived long after independent front suspensions sort of 
came around and uh, they were simple enough and did their job well enough that they survived for a long time afterwards. So hmm. pretty, wow. pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. So you're seeing that and you're doing art history. And so you're kind of sampling across the centuries of different ideas, but then you go into grad school for architecture. How did you kind of choose that path from all these kind of design I mean, uh, actually, what happened was I came out here, uh, Hmm. did some gap years right after college instead of going right to architecture school and worked for an architecture firm here for a year, uh, Fritz Benedict. He's Hmm. a wonderful man and a wonderful mentor. And I came out actually to Aspen to work for Herbert Beyer. Oh, yeah. We had a mutual friend, a guy that was a next door neighbor, uh, Hank Gardner, who was the head of design for the Museum of Natural History. And he had worked for Herbert Beyer. Hmm. And he said, Harry, you should go out and work for Herbert. And so I tried to do that. But Herbert didn't have any work. But Hmm. right next door, his brother-in-law, Fritz Benedict, was designing a snowmass, the hmm. resort Wow! Uh, at snowmass. And so we had lots of work and he could put a neophyte like me at a table and so on. And we hit it off. Fritz was just a great person and we hit it off and I had a wonderful year doing that. And then I went back east to go to the Boston Architectural Center hmm. where you could work and go to architecture school at the same time. And I did that for a year, and that was great experience. I worked for a great big firm, Perry Hepburn, Dean, and Stewart. And um, they had a variety of work, but it was clear again that wasn't going to be my path. <laughs> um, the Boston Architectural Center still exists. Yeah. And, and it does great work. But we'd started my class. I went into second year because I had enough experience at that point. And so I started in second year and there were 150 people in that class and the group that graduated that year were four, right? Four? Four. Yeah. Wow. Some people that came quite good, but, yeah. but I must say the rigor <laughs> it took to get through. That was after one year. In one year, 146 people dropped out. No, no, no. I'm sorry. There were 140 people in my class. And then the fourth year students, four of them graduated. I see. see. The the attrition rate was just basically because it was almost impossible. I don't know what people did for sleep, but Hmm. you can imagine going to a grad school level work and then uh, trying to do eight hours of work that we were doing in an office. Hmm. And, uh, And the office didn't slack off either. They demanded full attention. So yeah, with frequent charrettes and things. So it was, it was only for the young. (laughs) (laughs) And I had some encouragement. I got very strong encouragement. A guy named Don Metz who had graduated from Yale said, you should really go, you know, and it's interesting at that point, the thing that was wrong with the Boston Architectural Center at that point, not only was it really difficult, but it was taught primarily by volunteers. And unfortunately, the attitude of the volunteers a lot was one of sort of initiation to a difficult profession. And I knew I was doing some decent work, and yet everybody was getting kind of lambasted in these jury. It was a jury system in those days, and 
people would break down in tears and it just wasn't a good experience. It's since changed a lot, but mm. at that point it wasn't that great. And I went to Yale to look at the school and uh, walked into the building and there was uh, a model on the floor that was about 50 feet long. <laughs> it was of a street in New Haven. Hmm. And uh, it had buildings all along it that students had done. And Charles Moore, who was the dean of the school at the time, was down on his hands and knees, sort of looking down the length of the street and sort of encouraging everybody, get down here, here, look how great this is. Look how terrific this is. And I knew that was my school. <laughs> he said, okay, here's somebody that gets to pull rather than push. And that was a great thing. So I went to Yale. At that point, the program was three years and with a half year thesis after that. So it was a long program. When, when were you there? Well, that's really important. Okay. So it was there in, you know, postmodern Charles Moore. Yeah. Venturi took studios from Venturi. We had an extraordinary class and he liked our class so much that he stuck with us through all three years, one way or another. And mm. uh, with an entourage of really great sort of people that there because of him. And I had a lot of trouble because of my father's Bauhaus, my grandfather's Bauhaus background with mm. some of the lighter aspects of postmodernism. On the other hand, what was going on, and this is really important, was, you know, from 68 to 72. Oh, wow. And that was right in the heart. Bobby Seal was in jail in New Haven. Yeah. The, the school burnt down. The architecture, it didn't burn down because it was Paul Rudolph brutalism, so it didn't burn down. Yeah. But the stuff in it burnt. <sighs> and uh, very tragic, actually. There was a M-Arch program now what was it called I forget now anyway uh that was for people that would had a lot of experience and this guy had built a model of brooklyn that was about 20 by 30 feet mm. and uh, before he got to present it so really sad things it wasn't burnt by us and it was one of those things it just happened but it was a tinderbox the way the way that school was, we had this big, huge general space that the architecture school was in. Lovely space. Yeah. Gigantic statue of Athena and so on. It's really pretty amazing. It's been restored pretty much the way it was now. We all built little houses and things out of materials and made our own space within this gigantic room. And then it was filled with tracing paper and rubber cement. I mean, it, one spark and this thing was going to explode. So um, yeah, all the way up that light well up there, and yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. You went there, right? Yeah, Did I went there. Know? Yeah, yeah. So you, you know, right? But I don't know where it started, but it was just everything exploded and so on. So. And so what was that like being there with the Bobby Seal trial and everything going on and, you know, literally kind of being up there on that ivy concrete tower, you know, overlooking the campus where it's going on and didn't like Charles Moore had to leave or what, what yeah, was that? There were, there were, I mean, there was a lot of that, but more importantly, I think it was a period of social awakening mm. is what I would say. 
and interestingly enough, at least in my opinion, connected with what was happening with postmodernism, which was a, an integration of sort of social thinking mm. and symbolic cultural thinking into modern architecture with some important exceptions, to me, rather decadent. It, mm -hmm. it kind of gotten away from its original social origins. You know, there was a very deep connection, whether it was always realized or not is another thing, but the CAIM, Congress International Modern or whatever, mm -hmm. would have these meetings and their discussions were about making buildings and architecture for people that didn't have social sort of hierarchy to it and provided housing for everybody that was decent and had the basics and all those things. And modern architecture had gotten into sort of, a style, it did it rather quickly, but stylistic tropes. You know, they lost track of that kind of social connection. Mm. And what I felt was postmodernism was kind of bringing those kind of things back in. And the education I got when we were there with Charles Moore and, and Ray Gindros and various other, Kent Bloomer, these wonderful mm. teachers, was we studied early childhood awareness of three-dimensional forms and reintroduced elements and purposes into architecture that had been lost hmm. and been sort of abandoned in that period. So at the same time, to get back to your point, the social unrest fit into that. You know, here again, firsthand, right in front of us and all around us was this reaction to a sort of social hierarchy that was oppressive to a lot of people. And so it became apparent, and I would say everyone in our class, to some form or another, really got this message in a way. And so it was a combination of what was happening pedagogically in school and what was happening outside the doors that was connected. So the reaction to somebody like Charles Moore was, and Charles had his, you know, but he was sincere about his care about people and, mm. and how they lived and so on. And he was perceived, I think, you know, his reason for abandonment had more to do with just anybody in any figure of authority was an object of resistance or whatever in the whole school. I mean, uh, Kingman Brewster, who was the president of the university, had his own problems. I mean, yeah. everybody, the only person that was uh, Sloan Coffin who was a minister who sort of embraced the thing and that he was embraced by the reactionaries. But hmm. it was fascinating and it opened our eyes, as they say, to social awareness. So I would just say that it was difficult. I was taking a studio with the Venturis hmm. and I just got through talking with a biographer of the Venturis hmm. um, about that experience at that time yeah. where we had a jury uh, <clears throat> They were called that that point for our work. And we had the figures there because of the mentors were Tom Wolf, mm. um, Philip Johnson, mm. and uh, one of the Black Panthers. Mm. Uh, and I want to say Eldridge Cleaver, but I'm not sure. Anyway, it was somebody very, uh, you know, a prominent Black Panther. And then there were some others too. But the Venturis were dancing around that sort of social responsibility and connection with their work. But um, it also could be perceived as there was irony 
as there was in all of their work, which I loved and admired and so yeah. on as a student. But when you started to put it down where the rubber meets the road, where, you know, from the point of view of a Black Panther, this was pretty effete uh, Ivy League stuff. And uh, so, again, as a student, what an experience. What a great, amazing, and in my opinion, sort of life-changing experience to sort of see, okay, what we do when people say design doesn't matter, it does. When people say, you know, does it really affect how people live and what their life is like, it does. And so getting those kinds of lessons at that period of time was extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a spark of a moment, right? Like to me, looking back at 68, 69 and Venturi and Charles Moore and being in that new building and catching on fire and everything that's going on at that moment. And you're there in the middle of it and you're getting all wound up and you're getting all these ideas. And then you have to graduate at a certain point and you get spit out. And what happens? Well, the other thing that was going on, as I say, the side that I embraced anyway, and partly it had to do with why I went to Yale, uh, was to just go back slightly. I had an uncle who lived in Vermont. That was one of my mentors. He was an artist, painter. And he, for various reasons, traveled all over Vermont and had discovered Prickly Mountain. Hmm. And so he took me to Prickly Mountain, which is an area outside North Faston that uh, David Sellers and... Uh, Tom Lucky and a bunch of other really extraordinary Yale guys had done. Somebody had some land there and they had just started to build completely wonderful off the charts, radical buildings. Yeah. And they were building them hands-on. And at the same time, Yale had, and I don't know quite the sequence here, introduced for the first time as an architecture that I know of for an architecture school, hands-on building programs. And those hands-on building programs did two things. One, they gave you a very tangible familiarity with materials and construction and all that stuff, but also allowed a freedom in somewhere like North Faston, Vermont, where there were no building codes or anything, planning things and so on that you could do just extraordinary things. And I don't know how familiar you are with that whole piece of work, but it was amazing, really great stuff. Uh, very sculptural, but also they were mainly houses. There were a couple of community buildings, but basically they were houses. One of them was the Dymaxion House, David Sellers or something, and he found this gigantic mobile oil sign which was a winged horse and he incorporated it into a house hmm. and it, it, the house is this huge you know sign that was about I think six feet thick or something it's 40 feet tall how they got it there I have no idea whatever but it's this wonderful big house and then that was incorporated into the house and it was the most exciting thing this was before I got to architecture school or any of that stuff, but I'd already become a little bored, as I say, with what was going on with, quote, the modernists at that point and was disenchanted with that. And here was the opposite, just completely going on. And 
it had functionality, but it combined it in this original way. It was the freshest thing that mm. was happening. It still looks fresh. I tell you, you find I have a little booklet of Prickly Mountain, and you look at it. If somebody were doing it today, it'd be all over the internet and stuff. These would be just exciting stuff. It's really cool. So were you connecting uh, with those guys in Vermont? Like I'd heard about well, this group I, that I, went I, out there. They were, all yeah. from, they were all from Yale. I mean, yeah. that was the connection. And so, I mean, I met them when I went with my uncle and we toured these houses that were amazing uh, and incorporated elements, popular elements and vernacular elements. These days, again, they've become sort of common, but the idea that the, the seats at the counter in the kitchen were all made out of tractor seats and stuff. Mm. And they were just things like that. The, the light fixtures were all industrial light fixtures, you know, and then incorporating something like a sign, you know, mm. into, into being a house with all the symbolism of a flying horse and all that. It was just so clever and so much fun. You know, I think they probably leaked and they probably weren't terribly safe, you know, I think it was, I forget, but maybe it was Tom Lucky or one of those guys made a bed out of a gigantic sauna tube. He made a whole room out of a sauna tube. And I had everything. I had it. But the sauna tube rotated so that when it was one way, it was a bed. And then it would rotate around. And then it, you could sit in a hole. And it would be a desk looking out a window. And wow. I, mean, I don't know. It was very, very exciting stuff. Hmm. And, um, I don't know where I was going with that, but that was. Um, so what? Know. So where did you go with that? So all of that, like exciting oh, stuff yeah, in Vermont, was, and then... yeah, that, that's right. Yeah. So um, the point was that there was this hands-on build it because all of the sort of barriers in the way of taking a building from an idea to reality were so formidable and stultifying and so on that if you just jumped from the idea to building it you could avoid all that stuff building codes money maybe i don't yeah. know all that stuff. you could find things and put them together and then uh as a uh, first year student with the building project we did a project in kentucky hmm. and this was probably about a third or fourth year of that building project's existence. And our class divided up. A uh, group did a building in Wesleyan, a community center, rather amazing building, very original and interesting, but a real building, hmm. functional public building. Another group did a play structure shaped like a pyramid in a park in New Haven that was, again, very original, used all our sort of Piaget work that we had done in, as part of the school, you know, the pedagogy. Um, another group, the group I was involved in, did a thing in Whitesburg, Kentucky, uh, man-made lake. Fish Pond Lake is what it was called, but we built a beach and a docks and changing rooms and things like that. And I loved it. I mean, it would kind of combine proclivities that I already had, making things with my hands, as well as doing architecture. So I wasn't alone because of my earlier experience with Fritz and Aspen. He had a project where I could bring a group of my friends out to, again, another lake. Rudai Lake had just happened, 1966, I think it was built. And so this was about 68, 69. Um, 
and Fritz had some land and we spent a summer up here building domes were big we built a big dome and mm. platforms for the dome and the docks and things to play in in the water and all sorts of crazy stuff so mm. uh and i kept doing that for seven years <laughs> it was design build but the design build now implies much more established kind of building i mean you kind of go through all the processes but you're basically both the designer and the contractor in those days, it was very hands-on, and we, we were unconfined by building codes and much supervision and everything. And so after that, we went on to build houses uh, because people recognized this resource. These crazy guys from Yale would show up and design for free and then build this for three bucks an hour. <laughs> Uh, they'd get a house and <laughs> so we worked on very fancy places we worked in uh, snowmass and uh, starwood became a, you know very famous sort of subdivision outside of aspen where john denver had his house and various other luminaries and so on yeah and we built a house for twelve thousand dollars <laughs> you know sort of like prickly mountain right so for a doctor from <laughs> chicago <laughs> And then I built the next house I did was uh, up on uh, Red Mountain, uh, which is, again, just billionaires right and left up there and so on. But my future wife and I camped out in the rocks next to the construction site and overlooking Aspen and Aspen Mountain and everything else in a you know, gazillion dollar lot now and built a house for, I think, 23000 <laughs> Expensive. Yeah. Extravagant. So, so we were a deal and we did that. And then uh, by that time I was getting into my thesis year and my wife needed a job. My future wife, she wasn't married. We weren't married yet. She had an education background. So she worked in an alternative school and they needed a building. So hmm. This looked like a good thesis project, and I enlisted another friend, Peter Stoner and I, who were very interested in the connection between architecture and education and kids. This was, as I mentioned, sort of a theme that happened in school, you know, started out with Piaget and how people develop a sense of three-dimensional space and so on. And so we were very interested in that. And here was a school that needed a building, and it was in the radical 70s and early 70s, 72. And we could exercise our crazy, irreverent chops by building a school. So we designed a school as our thesis with the idea that we designed a school that could be built by novices, etc., out of logs. Hmm. And then we assembled a large crew of friends. Not all architects, some artists and sculptors and movie makers and theater people and so on from Yale Graduate School group and some other friends who were part of the school, about 20 of us, and uh, built the school and uh, in Woody Creek on some land that a wonderful philanthropist, George Stranahan, gave to the school. And my wife taught there for 45 years. Wow. And all four of my children went to that school. 
and it just got torn down about four years ago. Oh, no. Other than that, we built it for $10 a square foot. <laughs> and at that point, you kind of finished the thesis and you were building it in Aspen. And did you know you were sort of just going to be rooted in this area forever? Yeah, yeah. Basically, and I, I skipped over a little bit. I was on the ski team at Dartmouth. Mm. Uh, and I'd first come to Aspen through that. And uh, I love, of course, the skiing was unbelievable. And I thought, this is a great place to be. And then my year working with Fritz, I fell in love with the place and the town. And I felt very energized as opposed to being depressed by altitude and the lack of oxygen. I would seem to be energized by it. Hmm. that. And the, and the way the community was, it's no longer that way. But at that point, it was a town filled with rebellious people like me, you know, who were pushing the envelope in every direction. And that was great. You know, so here was my kind of place. So when we did our thesis and the answer was yes, yeah, I can do this. I can make a living here. The timing was right. The school got built, you know, all these people went, it resulted in other projects. And by 1975, I was able to hang up my nail belt and, uh, become a regular architect yeah. <laughs> got my license and stuff but i hadn't worked for aside from fritz and the firm in boston i really hadn't spent a huge amount of time working for other people um which is a drawback in a way because i didn't really know how to run an office but um, i got lots of work so that's what mattered yeah. Yeah. It just seems, again, like an amazing time in Aspen and like was. just the kind of meshing of people, it seems like, of coming in from different places and then like Hunter S. Thompson there hanging out. And Well, we got to say the school I did was in Woody Creek, right? Yeah. And when we showed up to build the school, um, the land was given by George Stranahan. And George was dear, dear, wonderful friend, just uh, died this year, very sad. But he um, was an interesting sort of entrepreneurial philanthropist, is what I want to say, you know. And one of his ideas, he sort of took care of people that he liked and thought were really creative. I was one of those, and Hunter was another. <laughs> so the school was right above Hunter's house, right? It was up on a, on a bench above Hunter Thompson's house. And Hunter shot a light out of a lantern that we had in our tents, right? From, from his house, which was really dangerous and not such a good idea. But we became very good friends after that. So. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, great spot for a school overlooking Hunter Thompson. Oh, yeah. No, the mixture, Woody Creek itself was filled with all sorts of crazy people that the eagles lived there you know don henley and george and it, it was a combination and then there were a guy named stanley natal he was a fifth generation rancher right mm. homestead so he had a very different point of view and we'd have these meetings um sort of caucus woody creek caucus meetings and you can imagine you know that with hunter and and uh and George, and they were dear friends. And then uh, uh, Stanley Nail and a couple of other ranchers, a guy named Wagner. These were people that 
you know, have been on this land for many generations and, uh, and all mixing together. And our school became the sort of meeting place for all this. And uh, I lived in the town too, so I was part of these meetings. They were insane. It was before reality TV, but if that had happened, these things would have been top-notch entertainment. I mean, you know, Hunter would show up drunk, and I mean, you know, you just can't imagine how crazy these meetings were. Wow. Jimmy Ibbotson of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. It was all was filled with all these kind of celebs and minor celebs and ranchers and, you know, who knows, billionaires. So such such a such a mixing pot of influences and yeah and yeah, I mean and you, and you came in with the kind of Charles Moore and postmodern background, um, and then all these other things mixing in. How did your architectural ideals or theories sort of evolve, maybe to where you are now, or maybe not that far, but from that point in this one place? Well, I would say that the thing that postmodernism did for me was it allowed me to look at vernacular architecture, right? Mm. In a way that I wasn't stuck in a modernist style or anything. I could look and my work never looked like Charles Moore, not even close. I didn't really incorporate very many sort of classical modern symbols in my work. Yeah. Uh, but what I did do was look really carefully, I think, in a lot of ways, like somebody like Werner Herzog or somebody coming to the West, you came to the West with a sort of a background of having looked at architecture all over the world and could see that the West at that point really had no indigenous style. Hmm. It had no kind of architecture of its own, except for completely pragmatic responses to our climate in the form of agricultural buildings and mining structures, industrial buildings. Mm -hmm. That those were buildings that were used uh, local materials and responded to local climate issues, et cetera, without the sort of self-consciousness. I mean, the closest thing for anything that came from somewhere else would be, let's say, the techniques for building with logs where they could use raw logs and so on. So you had Scandinavians and various other mm -hmm. groups uh, who were quite skilled at making beautiful dovetail joints and logs and using our wonderful straight lodgepole pine material to make log structures that were quite elegant. But otherwise, you know, like the Southwest, which, you know, had a various forms of adobe architecture, tainted with, you know, Spanish mm -hmm. influence. The Southern California with all its Spanish style architecture, very clearly coming from Europe. Colorado didn't have it. The buildings that were done in the mining era borrowed from things that were happening back east, but they weren't our own. There are a lot of the Victorian, quote, Victorian buildings in Aspen that were built during the mining era were all attempts at trying to be civilized hmm. in frontier town. Hmm. So you got, you know, first thing you did was to build a, you know, maybe a, an opera house or a city hall uh, with whatever they were, Richardsonian 
styles or other, you know, Italian, European styles. So there was really nothing. On the other hand, then you had Herbert Beyer bringing um, Bauhaus, and I think rather beautifully, you know, his buildings used these white roofs, which sort of imitated the snow on the roof and so on, and mm. the, the contrast against the black blue sky, very lovely kind of response. And Fritz, who was a Wright, he was one of quite a few Wrightian architects, but hmm. Fritz was probably the most prominent one. And he listened to what Frank Lloyd Wright said rather than imitating exactly what he did. Hmm. And so introduced local materials and used them in a rather interesting way. But still, they looked very Wrightian. Hmm. They were very, right, right. So you had the Bauhaus looking very Bauhaus and hmm. the, right, the Wrightian looking very right. And then Victorian stuff. And what I could see is that nobody was really responding to our climate with materials that we had in hand. So for me, coming here, the exciting thing was doing that. And so I think I probably adapted, you know, some shingle style ideas and some other sort of American things because I didn't escape totally being a postmodernist. Mm. But at the same time, eventually and rather quickly, evolved into sort of making buildings that were more inspired by things that much more humble origins, just very simple agricultural structures and mining structures using wood where the wood weathered naturally and using columns made out of natural timbers, that some of which even had the bark on them still. Hmm. And then assembling them in forms that responded to human need rather than sort of formal. So they were quite organic, but in a way that Frank Lloyd Wright talked about, but didn't do as much. He developed his own formality. And yeah. Buildings we did were, again, maybe more from New England, uh, big house, little house, back house, barn, the mm. idea that you could assemble buildings in an abstract way that had made a beautiful composition, uh, but weren't bound by a sort of a strict formal thing, but more about which way the hill slope towards the sun or away, and, you know, whether the entrance was kept clear of snow, and, you know, very practical things, but incorporating those into an architecture materials I like to say our mantra work here is materials that improve with age. Hmm. So that they develop a patina rather than something, you know, our climate is very harsh. So you have sun that just peels paint in a year or so, you know, and the ultraviolet destroys plastics and the temperature is difficult. And, you know, people would come here expecting you know, buildings that look like they came from Southern California with lots of glass and where there's no climate. Here we have, you know, 100 degree day climate differences. Mm. In one given day, we can have a 50 degree shift mm. in temperature. But, you know, we have temperatures from 20 below to 105 degrees. So it's a pretty big range. So you have to kind of acknowledge that and then make buildings that respond to that. Yeah, so then how did that sort of thinking then merge into the sort of larger kind of commercial scale things that you've done or um, cultural? The idea was to bring that in to my architecture, the 
sort of parties of my work were developed early. I'd say the building that really nailed it was that first school. Hmm. And the reason being that we designed a school for an emerging institution. It was a school, an elementary school, but because it was an innovative school itself, which was trying to escape the sort of rigid forms of a regular school. So what we identified was that this, in order to, for the different age groups in the classroom, right, or the school kids, the whole school was about old kids teaching young kids, a lot of hands-on learning and so on. So the school was designed without any hallways. The, the basic age groups were gathered around a central area. And that worked so well and was so convincing. I then applied that, I think, successfully to a lot of other kinds of things. Everything from a hotel, when we did the Hotel Lenado in Aspen, the only other building that had internal circulation for a hotel, all the rest were motel-like or mm. little groups of cabins or something. And uh, we were the first building to sort of incorporate that idea. And, and that was hugely successful. We then applied it to other institutional work that we did. There are a lot of very important ones, the music school and then Center for Physics, where we apply the same kind of thinking in terms of how the plan is organized. This is a, an institution in Aspen that uh, attracts uh, physicists from all over the world of very high quality. There are 40 plus Nobel laureates involved and various other important experimental physicists and so on. And the, the whole purpose of the institution is to is sort of nurture interaction. That's why they come here, you know, is to escape the sort of uh, silos of wherever academic institution they're in and mingle and so on. And so using architecture and the plan to nurture that was key to how this worked. And so those are themes that developed very early on, you know, as I say, with the school. But then we've applied to everything from public buildings and also in private buildings. I like to think that, you know, one of the core features of a house is this sort of intermingling of public and private spaces, right? Mm -hmm. So you want a plan of a house that works is one that sort of provides opportunities and working with clients to talk through how their life would work uh, in those respects. And in my opinion, because private clients are slightly different than a institutional client, um, they become places where you can try out things that are a little more experimental and then figure out what works, not just in terms of materials and, and sort of other, other ideas, but also in terms of how they affect the inhabitants. Mm. Yeah. So looking back, do you have a day that was the best day in your career, the peak <laughs> or something really? <laughs> No, in the 50 I, I, years. I have to say that one of the great ones was uh, there have been a lot. I've been really fortunate. And I think that, as I mentioned earlier, one of the great things about arriving here when I did and working in a community like this is I've been able to do everything from little tiny tree houses and campsites and 
private residence of a small scale and fancy private residence and then hotels and restaurants and elementary school and a music school and a campus for country day school and then center for physics. So you get a complete spectrum of, you know, really unusual, wonderful projects. Um, but having a concert like the tent at the Aspen Music Festival, which holds 2,000 people, had replaced a very beloved uh, structure by Herbert Byer yeah. uh, that had very bad acoustics mm. was part of its demise. It leaked and it had bad acoustics. Functionally, it was bad. <laughs> so the musicians were rebelling. I didn't enjoy taking down Herbert's work, but he'd taken down Saarinen's work, so I was in <laughs> good company. Yeah. But when that opened, and we had inkling that it was going to sound good, but you imagine, I mean, here's this thing, and acoustics are a bit of a crapshoot. Mm. Um, there's an element of intention, and we had wonderful, that one was Larry Kierkegaard's and his outfit that had done the acoustics. Mm. So you're working with people that their job is to anticipate what things are going to sound like. But it opened with uh, Mahler's Third Symphony and, of course, 250 people and an orchestra that was 150. And um, and you get 2,000 people in there wondering what it's all going to sound like. And uh, uh, you have a piece that ends dramatically, mm. right, with rather robust piece that ends dramatically. And it sounded great, and everybody gave a standing ovation so that was probably pretty good just the whole environment and architecture and yeah. sound and social and That's everything it. just meets and yeah a lot of you know we work with a music festival a lot of projects now we've done housing for them and the music school and the harris hall which has got just unbelievable acoustics sort of an underground facility for 500 that is used for rehearsing next to the tent and for performance. And it's revered by musicians as a great acoustic environment. But I always like to say, you know, walking, we walk around the music campus, which is, you got lots of activity going on, three different practice facilities for large orchestras, 84 individual practice rooms and everything in between. And you walk around and there's music coming out of everywhere. Mm. It's like having a soundtrack to your architecture, mm. right? It's mm. just every turn you get some other fabulous music going on. It's pretty great. Yeah. Like you said, you have 50 years of architecture. And what I keep running in with these interviews is your impact on people as well and how many people have come through your office and worked for you. I just talked with Sarah Broughton and she spent some time in your office. And yeah. you started in this time of social upheaval and change and figured out a way to work within it. And, you know, it feels like we're in a time like that now. I don't know how they compared, but what sort of advice do you have for me or for younger architects coming up and trying to find their way and trying to influence the world? Well, it's difficult because our tribute part of, you know, I was in the right place at the right time. Hmm. You know, that's partly luck. But I think I did... My motivation for coming here uh, was pure, right? Mm -hmm. It was a place where you were not going to be encumbered by a lot of 
unnecessary influences and things. You know, when we did this school, you couldn't do that school that we did for $10 a square foot. Yes. We wouldn't have passed a lot. So I'm not suggesting that you escape all those encumbrances, but at least recognizing where they are and where you can be free and open and develop yourself is really good. And I don't know where that is in the world now. And I don't, you know, this was a unique confluence of people. And I haven't mentioned a couple of things, but I mean, you know, it shouldn't go unmentioned. I mean, you know, this was a place whose landscape inspired me too. Mm. You know, it wasn't the adversities of the climate that attracted me. It was the, it was the, the beauty and the, 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 the pureness mm. and the authenticity that building here and being here required attracted me. So I think um, everybody has their own soul that can be attracted to a kind of environment that is right for them. So I guess my only advice would be to be true to that. Mm. You know, if it's a funky urban, interurban mess, great, go for that. You know, if it's a pristine, natural environment, go for that. Uh, I don't deny that I get conflicted. Uh, we work on some raw sites, right? So what is that about? With a modern sense of contemporary sensibility, you have to think about that. You know, how much are we destroying new land to create something? Mm. There's a responsibility there. I do think it's really important to address and deal with that, even if I teach uh, studios uh, for at UCD and they come up here and work here. And what I think can really happen here is that a natural environment can raise questions that need to be addressed that you don't necessarily think about as often in an urban kind of setting. And in the architecture school, you know, it's in Denver and Denver has grown and matured in wonderful ways since in 50 years, that's for sure. But it's still, the school is very, very focused on that, partly because of its location. And coming to the, uh, up here to do a, a, a studio and deal with things like topography that isn't flat mm -hmm. or isn't already supplied with utilities and integration to a climate that is not instantly apparent or definable by numbers. Um, in our part of the world, the climate on one side of a hill is completely different than 50 yards away on the other side of the hill. You know, the amount of rainfall is different, the amount of sunlight, the amount of just general temperature and so on is different. Um, recognizing that and understanding that even the city, the urban environment grew from that not just in my lifetime, but way before that, when Denver was a little cow town. Yeah. That all of this sits on a natural place and as wonderful and efficient in a lot of ways an urban development is, more so than a rural one, uh, sort of making that connection, I think, deepens uh, sensibility uh, for that. So I think... As I say, making an effort to escape those sort of normal, um, not normal, but those those 
default. Yeah, is what I'm saying. Uh, in any way, whether it, you know, I could say the same thing by somebody that's grown up here, go jump in the city and get what social inequality is really all about. Um, certainly, you get it in Aspen, but it's the difference between a billionaire and a millionaire. Yeah, I mean, urban environment. Some struggle. Yeah, a lot of hardship. Yeah, not that there isn't that too right. here. I guess, you know, that's my thinking. I feel fortunate to have been able to find institutions. More than half of our work is for nonprofits, right? So, hmm. um, and has been um, for a long time. And that allows me, anyway, to, you know, have a clear conscience <laughs> um, about what I'm doing and know that I'm doing work that's um, using the skills and talents that I have and that the people in my firm have to do something that otherwise wouldn't get done. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, fantastic. Thank you. Thanks again for coming on and sharing your story. And it's always great to see you around and be influenced by your work. So thanks for the talk. Yeah, Adam, I, just back to you. I think what you're doing is fantastic. And I, I do think the one thing I think that is not as prevalent as it should be is conversations like this mm. that aren't commercially oriented. And the AIA conferences have brilliant people at them and good talks and so on. But primarily, there's a lot of focus on sort of professional development and that sort of thing. I was involved in the, well, I was president of it for a while, the International Design Conference in Aspen, mm. which brought together architects and designers from all over the world, really top-notch event um, with no professional focus. Mm. It was and no commercial focus. It was about ideas, yeah. design ideas and design paths. And I admire what you're doing. This is it. We'll have a design conference. I'm working with a couple of people trying to restart one mm. and we'll see you. If so, we'll Make sure we get you on board. Yeah, I'd love that. This is ultimately it's just fun for me. So yeah, glad we can do it. So thanks, Harry. Great, John. You can visit architecting.com. That's architect-ing.com to see images from this week's guest. And please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week and keep connecting. I, I, I wanted to ask, um, well, I saw that you were uh, worked on the, the taxi project with, with Will Bruder yeah. and David Baker. What, what was that process like? What, what happened with that? Well, it was great. I mean, it, it, it started out, I, I, I give Nikki a lot of credit. Um, I, I say a lot of positive things about him, that's for sure. Um, it, not, not, not as his son wasn't on board yet. But it was Mickey, and, and he uh, put together this idea that he would have um, a group like us do this. Alan Brown was also involved, but he was sort of the guy that was working for Mickey directly to sort of keep us under control. <laughs> and, and, and he was great. I mean, he was wonderful, but I'm just saying. So he made a big contribution, <laughs> too. But we started out doing independent buildings, 
So he was going to make one of these sort of mini Columbus, Indiana thing or something. Mm. You know, each building sort of competing with each other to be cool and so on. And it became apparent right away, or at least to me, that the budget wasn't going to allow this. Right? They were Mickey was trying to build at a hundred bucks a foot, and uh, and just said, you know, that the only way we're going to get there is if we. Uh, come up with a system. I take credit for this. Hmm. That um, uh, that that could do that, right? So I, I said the only people I know that we have to get these engineers on board who will give us a, a structure that can actually be built for that amount of money. Hmm. It's got to be the least expensive way to make something hmm. possible. And so we worked with KLNA, who mm. might work with on uh, a couple of projects at that point. Yeah. I don't know if we did the tent yet. Maybe we have, but we did Harris Hall and some other projects. They're they're very wonderful. Yeah. This is uh, uh, Brant Lonard and uh, Greg Kinsley were the, mm. the 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 firm is huge now. Yeah, big deal. But at that point, it was my buddies. And we put together a system and got everybody to agree to, rather than make this little village of, of buildings, to make one building that we all worked on. Mm. And the, 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 we would uh, submit to the engineer's concept of how to make it work cheap, right? <laughs> so it was this four four stories high wherever this you know extended across the lot um, kind of thing and then each of us sort of took a part Dave Baker is a you know fantastic genius at, at, at uh, unit configurations and sizes and yeah. all that stuff um, Will Bruder wonderful you know, materialist and uh, formalist and so on. Well wanted, as I say, more gothic kind of arrangement. Hmm. And then uh, and then I had this vision, okay, we'll just do this one building. Hmm. The whole thing, we'll all work on that. So it involves my, so each of us has a contribution. My, my rusty metal, my my, uh, but Ritter had done a rusty metal building. So, yeah. But it was after it was after a house that we did. Mm. I just have to say. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> uh, Dave Baker was very w w wonderful and easy. But Will was a little more difficult to work with, but it worked fine, you know. And then we, you know, uh, each of us sort of added ingredients. And got to make you know little contributions, and the, the as I say, the rusty metal and the translucent materials, which are sort of very much in our palette, all all part of that uh, process. And I think we all embraced the the original taxi building that Alan Brown had done with Mickey, which was the headquarters for the taxi hmm. the taxi one. Right, we were taxi two. Yeah. Taxi One was this uh, the actual headquarters for a taxi company, mm -hmm. uh, yellow cab taxi company or something. And uh, all of us liked the funk and the, and the sort of the 
you know, I'm amazed it turned, you know, actually happened. It, it's pretty unusual, actually, that that happened. I, I sort of wished it gotten more uh, recognition publicly because I think it's it's not the worst example <laughs> of, of of an architectural project. It worked. It came in at 104 bucks. Wow. Four. I mean, I mean, really amazing, huh. right? That's yeah, that's incredible, right? It is. It's got high design in it. It's got, um, you know, it influenced uh, Steve Dini's work from then. I mean, he's done his own things, but mm -hmm. but I'm just saying it was really a, a pretty amazing thing and very successful, sold out commercially and, and residentially. Uh, um, you know, fits definitely part of the Rhino landscape. You know, part of the deal setting the tone for that kind of edgy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it really worked as such a good uh, sort of spark for that whole area. And then it's just taken off into a great but I couldn't environment. Get, I couldn't get mag magazines to touch it. We got Hersley to photograph it, hmm. to, to beautiful pictures and stuff. But the magazines, for some reason, got all, they couldn't handle the fact that there were three architects or something. <laughs> That it was a collaborative project rather than than a than done by one individual. Huh. I don't know why. You know, I I think it was worthy yeah. in all sorts of ways. Yeah. Huh. Strange. But it never really got terribly it got a few little vignettes, but nothing I think the story is so interesting, it's yet to be sort of told. I'm just giving you the overview, but but I mean it was the process was really interesting. Yeah. And, hmm. Yeah. I'll have to make a, a a mini podcast series, and we'll we'll dive into that project. We get a panel together. Yeah. We could all we could zoom or something. Yeah. And it ought to be interesting because because Bruder gets kind of prickly about it, um, but that's just his problem. You know, good. <laughs> I like it. I, I I smell I smell a good story out there. Let's do it. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, cool. Well. Good talking, right. and, uh, and um, keep it up. Look forward to we'll run into you at school. Definitely I'll be down. Yeah, let me know for the reviews December. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Okay. Great. Good talking. See you, Harry. See you, bye. This is Sarah Hubbard, host of You and Me Kid, a podcast about starting and raising a family on your own. We just launched season two, and I'm speaking with single moms, those still considering, and experts in relevant fields to give you a real sense of what the day-to-day -day experience of solo parenting looks and feels like. Plus, this season, I've partnered with California Cryobank, the number one sperm bank in the U.S. So wherever you are in the process, this podcast provides some support, humor, and helpful information. Listen to You and Me Kid wherever you get your podcasts.